you can't have it both ways. If you want to keep a capitalist, well-functioning market in healthcare, you have to have regulation to avoid it from like spiraling into either caring for like the richest people. So it's really, again, distilling back to your values. Like what do you care about? Or the alternative is single pair, which I know for a fact isn't very popular with a lot of free market enthusiasts. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. This week and next week's podcasts are a two-part interview with Vinny Singh, an assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a PhD in Health Economics and Policy. In today's episode, we discuss the current cost and quality of healthcare in the United States and where we stand with other comparable developed countries. We look at the current state of the ACA and how we might progress on the healthcare insurance front in the United States to reduce costs and improve quality of care. Next week, Vinny shares some challenges the U.S. faces regarding the concept of universal health care and how information sharing, risk sharing, and simplifying the reimbursement system are ideas that can help to reduce health care costs and improve quality. Okay, Vinny, a warm welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm excited to interview you. Like I've said, I have to say the recent American Health Policy in 2020 webinar that you and your colleagues prepared has been one of the most engaging I've seen uh, addressing health policy. And for listeners, this webinar is now available on YouTube, and I'll have it in the show notes. And being that you are a health economist, I'm really looking forward to discussing with you, you know, what healthcare looks like today in the U.S., the current state of the Affordable Care Act, what changes can improve cost and quality of care, and then options to consider surrounding health policy and ideas as we move forward. Absolutely, yeah. So before we start, I just want the listeners to understand the value of your insights based on your impressive academic pedigree. Your bachelor's uh, was in ecology and evolutionary biology from Rice University. You had a master's in international health, health systems from John Hopkins University, and your PhD in health economics and policy from Emory University. So basically, you know what you're talking about, and we should listen to some of the research you've completed and your ideas on health policy. I, I'll have some addenda to it later on. <laughs> Starting with what healthcare looks like in the U.S. today, I wanted to share the statistics expressed on the webinar, and these are high level. Obviously, there are some more detailed ones, but um, currently the U.S. healthcare industry is 17% of GDP and $3.3 trillion. Rounding this up, it's almost 20% of GDP, so one-fifth of every dollar in the U.S. is spent on healthcare. On average, $10,000 a year is spent per person on healthcare in the U.S. On the quality side, I was surprised to hear the statistic offered on the webinar regarding the metric that tracks deaths preventable by treatment, and the U.S. is ranked 34. Compared to similar developed countries that do a form of universal health care, they spend on average 9 to 11% of GDP and $1.3 trillion, and their cost per person is 3500 to 6000 So in these countries, healthcare is approximately... 30% less, I think is what I heard, for services, and 50 to 60% less in the cost of prescription medication. 
So if the U.S. spends all of this on healthcare, why can we not expect that the quality is better than these countries? Uh, that is a complicated question. And people have actually like spent their entire lives studying a very small part of it. And there's still research being developed on each of these parts. So, but I don't know if I can speak to why it doesn't translate to a better quality, but there is definitely a very different system in the United States. And that's because of this tripod uh, that drives healthcare. Uh, and that's the way healthcare is provided and the way it's uh, reimbursed. So um, I think I mentioned in the webinar, um, I had like an infographic which showed that the three drivers, uh, the central players in US healthcare are the patient, the provider, uh, the provider is usually the doctor or the hospital, and then there's the insurer. And the insurer is, um, there's two categories of insurers. The biggest insurer probably would be the government because they provide Medicare and Medicaid, but a very large insurer are like this hodgepodge of private insurance companies that also insure the process of healthcare provision. So uh, because of this sort of like it's, it's very fragmented because the people who provide the care are not responsible, are not directly responsible for um, insuring it. And, and the insurers are on a separate leg that creates all these inefficiencies that sort of lead to the prices of care skyrocketing in the U.S. compared to other countries. And, and people often ask why, why is uh, the United States healthcare so expensive? And the reason anything is expensive is either you buy a lot of it or the, the price of each thing you buy is really high. And while there's some evidence that the United States uses a lot of care, there's a lot more evidence that the price of care is so much higher in the U.S. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I can talk about it in more detail, but that's sort of one of the big reasons it's so expensive, but it doesn't really translate to um, high quality. It's just it's just a de facto system that's put together seemingly almost at random. Talking about that, uh, you know, additional statistics was that the number of people that are uninsured and underinsured and privately insured and mostly through employers. So it depends on employment numbers. But 40% of the U.S. population or 132 million is uninsured or underinsured. And, you know, for the underinsured, can we assume that they do not see care for preventative care and sometimes you know, even chronic care and basically have insurance to cover them for only, you know, traumatic healthcare needs. Uh, absolutely. So under insurance just means that you theoretically have insurance, but it might as well just be catastrophic insurance, which is what happens if you, I don't know, get into a car accident, but uh, sort of the day-to-day -day of what it takes to be a healthy person is largely denied um, to these individuals. So... <laughs> What it takes to be a healthy person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it, it's definitely, it's so hard because especially in the United States, there's this thing, there's this concept where if you're in bad health, it's your fault. It's a moral failing, but all of us are going to, at some point, you know, lose our health temporarily or for a long time, but we are all going to fall sick. And especially in the U.S., because of this conception about health, some people find it easier to stay healthy and some people find it harder. That's sort of what I mean by what it takes to be a healthy person. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, you can't, you can't control your genetics that you're born with, which some diseases are genetically predisposed. And then, you know, there is lifestyle that you can control. And I, I do believe there's education and awareness starting on that. 
but it takes time, effort, and money. And some people don't have all of that that they want to put towards it. So, but having preventative care, you can't really see, like, you know, you don't run around with things on your heart telling you if, you know, hey, you know, you might want to go get this checked or, you know, you don't necessarily know you have high blood pressure until you get it measured. I mean, there's just some basic things that if you had some preventative wellness care on an annual basis to track that and then see if you're trending towards a level that, you know, is of concern before you actually have heart attack and die. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's not even just the measurement of your health status. It's just the inputs of your health status are denied to some people in the US. Getting healthcare is considered this like extra appendage where you go, you go to the doctor, you get drugs or prescriptions and it helps you heal. But health is like an ongoing process, right? So it's not just about getting better. It's there needs to be some support for you to be able to eat healthy and uh, exercise and, you know, get some time off to go to go not live in a food desert. And if everything was equitable, there would still be an underlying distribution of illness in the population, purely based on genetics. But the fact that it is not equal, these underlying disparities are worsened or that at this point, it's really hard to even tell what is genetics and what is just you living in poor conditions that exacerbate what could have been a healthy lifestyle. This is one of my takeaways from the webinar is that the remaining 60% of the privately insured individuals in the U.S. pay for the increasing costs of the other 40% being that, for example, hospitals treat uninsured and underinsured, but the 60% of the insured patients pay for the losses of that care. Yeah, that is one one effect, one side effect of having people who are underinsured or uninsured. It's that trickles down and no one is going to stomach a loss. And eventually just sort of gets passed through to us in terms of higher premiums, which is unfortunate, but I don't really see hospitals or providers writing that into their balance sheets. So what part of the healthcare system, if any, is currently working to reduce costs as a result of the Affordable Care Act in the U.S.? Um, so, oh, that is, uh, there, there are so many answers to that. Also, I just want to like quickly say in the middle of all this that anything I say uh, is research, but it's also weighted with opinion because it is the field of research on this is so large. And these questions are so broad, like how to reduce costs or how to improve quality, that there's so much research on it that I take that research and sort of weighted with my own values and provide recommendations. The recommendations might very well be different if someone else read this body of research. Uh, of course, if you, you know, if I was asked very specific questions, which I don't know how useful that is, but for in academia, we're used to answering the six small questions and then slowly accumulating knowledge. It's easier to not have to take into account my values because if you ask me how to, uh, how is the ACA doing on this very small subset of population with with this X disease who display Y behavior, I can be like, I have the answer to that. But when when I'm asked like how to reduce costs or how to improve quality, it's like, there's a lot of research on it, but I have to distill it somehow. And I'm going to distill it based on what I think is important. So just a little um, disclaimer uh, before we talk about. Well, I will tell you that probably there is some of the audience that has done a ton of research, but I think the value of your insights is important because you have probably studied this to an extent that many others have not. 
I could get specific, obviously, in one tranche. And this this conversation easily could, I mean, we could spend all day. But I'm just trying to hit some highlights just to have the conversation that, hey, you know, we the U.S., this is the reality of the U.S. healthcare industry in what it is today. You know, the, the audience listening to this are affected by higher costs. And then I think as a result, people not choosing to see physicians or, you know, those of us that do use healthcare wanting to see, you know, some sort of realm of reality of costs. Yes, yes, absolutely. So your question was, what is the ACA sort of doing that's helping quality, right? And I think people are like, well, I I know it's out there, but I don't use it. So I hear that it's there, but I just pay, you know, I'm asked to if I want to pay taxes or not. So they don't really understand what it's doing, what is working right now. And between, you know, the time that President Obama put it into place and then President Trump scaled back some things and then, you know, what the new administration is planning to do, I don't think anyone, unless they do a deep dive, really understands kind of what is working with it. How is it benefiting us and why should they care? Okay. Okay. Oof, such a large question, but I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are two things about the ACA. One is the political part that I can speak less to. uh, And the other is like the actual impacts of it, which I can speak more to. I'm going to quickly speak about the political part because I think it's important. And there have been a lot of efforts to scale it back uh, and sort of cripple it. And I, uh, I don't know how much the audience would know, but one of the key, not even the key, it was like crazy that became the key part, but important part was the individual mandate, which is like, if you don't uh, buy health insurance, uh, you get a small penalty. Honestly, the first year it was so small, it was like 90 bucks. So it, it, it is wild to me that it's sort of become this huge issue that could very well be the reason it is entirely repealed. So you pay a small penalty if you don't have health insurance. The reason, the very important reason that a penalty was needed is because of this economic term called uh, adverse selection. Adverse selection is what happens when in an insurance risk pool, if you don't mandate participation, what happens is the sickest people buy in. So, so the sickest people would buy into the, the ACA risk pool. And then the risk pool would be entirely just filled with sick people. But in a risk pool, you need sick people and healthy people to balance the risk and keep costs low. So the individual mandate sort of tried half-heartedly to do this, which was if you don't buy health insurance, then you get a small penalty. And it was supposed to encourage people to sign up for whatever health insurance you wanted on the individual marketplace. Honestly, it was repealed. um, And people thought that the ACA, the individual marketplace, which was one thing the ACA set up, would sort of unravel. And it didn't, which sort of showed that the individual mandate wasn't really doing all that much. It was too small a penalty, but people wanted health insurance. They would have bought health insurance anyway. So I think November 10th was a hearing where this concept of severability came up, right? Which was like, if you can show that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, basically forcing people to do something they don't want to do, it was a very layperson meaning of it, then the entire bill can be repealed. So can the individual mandate be severed from the bill or is it too tied up that the whole bill has to be repealed? That's what is going on in the Supreme Court right now. And obviously no one can predict the way the judges will rule, but that is the argument that people are making to repeal the ACA. And I have personal thoughts on it. uh, So I'm not going to talk about 
what I think should happen, but that is the question that is up for discussion right now. That is a political part. The healthcare part is like, wh- why? So the, the ACA made, tried its best, is, is the easiest way I can do, given what they were allowed to do. Because the ACA wasn't able to implement some of its uh, essential features, like uh, they tried to do a public option, but that was ruled unconstitutional. It sort of, by definition, created these pockets where some people, for some people, healthcare became really expensive. And for some people, it became a lot cheaper. And I think as a society, we should try to fit, you know, rearrange this balance of the people for whom it becomes the most expensive or the people who can bear it. But what the ACA did really well is uh, expand coverage, expand Medicaid in many states, like deeply conservative states. There's a push towards expanding Medicaid, uh, even though in the beginning, you know, no one really wanted it. But it's because there's just wave after wave of research that shows that expanding the eligibility criteria for Medicaid actually improved outcomes a lot for uh, for the lowest part of the distribution of poor people and people who would not have gotten care otherwise. And again, it sort of distills down to values, right? Like, do you think this was worth it? And that's really something that I cannot answer for everyone. Of course, the ACA got a lot wrong as well, but I think it was its enduring popularity, despite so many efforts to roll it back, sort of tells two things. One is that you cannot roll back uh, support systems. Once they're in and once people have insurance, you will not be able to popularly roll it back, even if you think it's unpopular, because once people have health insurance, it, it, it's sort of political suicide to have it taken away from them. Well, and I think progress is messy when you're going through it. I mean, history books clean it up nicely for you, but I think progress, it has a start. Then there's complete mess in the middle to like then sort of think about it and reorganize it and try to fix things that you didn't get right. Yeah, you it's s- like your first child. <laughs> you know, like just, you're trying to do the best you can. You don't know very much. You have books. You try to read it, but then you screw them up in a very specific kind of way. So in the next child, you're like, ah, ah I, I, I can learn. <laughs> so... And I feel like this is a bad example, but if we want to legally drive, we are required to have car insurance to protect our cars because they are expensive. Uh, car insurance is the most common analogy, honestly. Um, actually, the, the the adverse election thing that I mentioned, the guy who came up with that sort of got a Nobel Prize for it. And the paper was like market for lemons, which and it was like compared to like auto insurance, which is, you know, cars that are lemons. So yes, it's a, a good analogy in many ways, but also not good because healthcare, the healthcare market has its own very individual set of peculiarities that are never taught in Econ 101. So when you, you know, when people talk about competition and capitalism and all this doesn't sort of doesn't, in some ways it applies to the healthcare market, in some ways it doesn't. That's why if I had my way, I would probably have a a uh, robust market that is just heavily regulated, you know, it just in healthcare markets, if it's not regulated, then there isn't enough transparency. There's so many information. It basically violates so many of the necessities of a perfectly competitive market that you're just going to end up being a bit screwed. So when the founding fathers found this country, it was 13 states. Now we're 50 states, 
territories. I mean, there's a lot to manage. Yeah, yeah. And um, you can't have it both ways. Either it is going to be, if you want to keep a capitalist, well-functioning market in healthcare, you have to have regulation to avoid it from like spiraling into uh, just either caring for like the richest people. So it's really, again, distilling back to your values. Like, what do you care about? Or the alternative is single pair, which I know for a fact isn't very popular with um, a lot of free market enthusiasts. Do you think the ACA is improving the quality of healthcare for those who would otherwise not have insurance? Um, yes. And I, sorry, I, I, there's an important point I want to make that I, we, I keep getting on tangents. So I think the reason people are against localized medicine, which is really just Medicare, because it would raise their taxes. And one thing that people don't realize is that we're already paying a tax. We just don't know it. Either we're paying taxes in the form of ridiculously high premiums, or, and this is great research, I would really encourage anyone interested, please reach out to me. I will provide you with this. It's this that because so much of insurance is tied to employment, we're just not getting the raises that we would because the employers, they're paying for more and more healthcare and they're taking it out of wages. I get why it's unpopular, uh, the, the single payer or Medicare, because it will just make this hidden tax not hidden. You're Now you're just paying it and you see it on your check and, and nobody likes it. But if you're going to be unhappy about paying more taxes, just know that you sort of already are. Uh, you can be unhappy about that for sure. Be unhappy. It's, you know, if, if that's what you believe, but just don't fall for the marketing of it. You go to the doctor, they still want to get paid the same amount. The insurance company only pays a certain amount. And then you as the patient have to pay the balance. And like you said, through wages, it's getting affected. And you also, as you see right now with employment issues, if people don't have a job, then they aren't getting insurance then they become uninsured or underinsured too. And it just increases the cost of the rest of the system. So it's like this dynamic. We're all in this together. So if I'm screwing you in one way, you're screwing me in another. So why don't we just be more explicit about how we're getting screwed and we're screwing. <laughs> Sorry, I know I probably... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.